Happy Monday, and this is John Halsman welcoming you to our newsletter, where we try to make sense of how the world actually works. And today, uh, we're being fearless uh, about foreign policy and discussing the realist limits to helping Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has become, unfortunately, a fairy tale in the paper, uh, where the United States endlessly will pick up the tab for the plucky Ukrainians fighting for their very existence and fighting undeniably heroically against the Russians. But foreign policy is run by the head and not the heart, and I'm going to make reason, point out the reasons, the realist reasons, that the United States and others must limit their help to Ukraine which will not be a wildly popular thing to say. And speaking of not being wildly popular, before we begin, I just want to spare a thought for the writer Salman Rushdie. I'm not a huge fan of Rushdie's work, which I think is incredibly overrated, but I would fight to the death for his right to say it. Speaking as someone who writes and tries to write fearlessly about the world, I, though I don't like his prose, I admire Rushdie's courage, and I always have. And the attack on him is an attack on anyone who believes in the Jeffersonian notion of liberty and free speech. As Jefferson said, if you had to pick one thing to be free in a society in order to ultimately make it Republican in nature, what would you pick? And he thought about it, and Jefferson decided in the end that a free press would be the thing that he picked, because if he had that, if that was guaranteed, eventually everything else would come right. I think that's exactly true. And Rushdie is at the forefront of this, saying things that are pointed, that force you to question things, that are offensive to some. And the ultimate goal of living in the West, one of the strengths of the West, is that you must allow the freedom to hear things that you don't like, perhaps even despise, but you allow the person the freedom to have that. In his fearlessness, Rushdie has pushed this envelope and paid a horrible price for it. And all of us, all of us in the world who believe in the Jeffersonian concept of liberty must st take a stand, clearly saying that we are on the side of Rushdie now and forever. And so following that heroic path, I will continue to do what I've always done in my work, which is speak the truth analytically as best I can to people in power and to the rest of the world, whether it's popular or not. So today, what are the realist limits to helping Ukraine? Well, first, let's talk about the money. Number one, the money. The American taxpayer is now, to help Ukraine, borrowing tens of billions of dollars they don't have. So that's the first point. The United States acts, or certainly the foreign policy blob I deal with in Washington, act like there's an endless supply of money on the magic money tree in the backyard. Uh, the one line I can now, when I go back to Washington and give a speech that I can say about Iraq, that will always get a, be a laugh line and will get applause, is do you want your trillion dollars back? When put like that, given America's problems, its educational problems, uh, the fact that its infrastructure is creaking, the fact that it has a monumental public debt that's getting worse since the drunken sailor spending days of the Obama administration, that the United States, in essence, spends more than it brings in, which would mean it's broke while it has terrible educational system that needs tending and an infrastructure system that needs tending and military spending that needs to be up to date for the real problem, which is dealing with China. 
Given all these realities, most of the foreign policy blob in Washington, certainly the Council of Foreign Relations, where I, where I am a life member, never bother to consider this. Lip service is paid to, yes, this costs money, but as so few of them are economists or frankly have ever been in the private sector where you can actually be fired for financially being incompetent, they assume that we can just write another check and that their area of expertise deserves extra billions of dollars from the hardworking Americans in Mississippi, Kentucky, West Virginia, Iowa, what are derisively termed by these very same people, the flyby states. And so subsidizing their social engineering dreams for the rest of the world is a factor in this. And Ukraine is costing a fortune to keep going. Uh, billions, I don't want to put a number on it because the numbers have varied so much, but we can safely say billions per month to keep the whole creaky edifice going. At the same time, the United States has up to now sent nearly 54 billion, you heard me right, 54 billion dollars to Ukraine, while European allies send up to a billion dollars a day to Putin for Russian energy. And this is the link to the Europeans' disastrous foreign policy of the last generation, where I was arrogantly told over and over again that it didn't matter where gas and oil came from, that security of supply was not an issue in the era of globalization, that the only issue that mattered was which was cheapest. And as we see, that is not true. And now we are paying the piper for the Europeans' idiotic foreign policy. And everyone involved in European energy policy ought to take a good look in the mirror at themselves this morning and think about whether they should be fired. Of course, no one here can be, but the answer is yes. So we're in a situation where we're spending billions of dollars. The U.S. has sent $54 billion to Ukraine already to try to keep it going, while the European allies spent, send, uh, have spent, send up to a billion dollars a day to Russia and to Putin for Russian energy. And so this is an insane situation we find ourselves in. Uh, the second part of the money uh, kind of angle is that the Europeans have spent less than the United States on this. And I am reminded of what was told to me once by a wise old Dennis Ross, a wise old Middle Eastern foreign policy hand. Dennis was a Clinton administration guy who said to me, one of the problems with Arab-Israeli peace and the Palestinian issue in particular is that often Western leaders want the peace more than the people on the ground do. I can't, as he said, want Middle East peace more than the Middle Easterners. And that's exactly right. I can't want European security more than the Europeans. And yet we're in the odd position where they're scrambling to spend 2%, which frankly ought to be the bargain basement of any sort of military spending, given that we now see that Russia is indeed, as I've said for two decades, a strategic threat to the West, that while this is true, uh, they have chosen to free ride off the United States, that we have indeed wanted European security more than the Europeans, and that this has infantilized them, and that this continues, although there's a lot of lip service paid and some money given, the United States is spending more than all the European countries put together in financing Ukraine. And this is not a healthy situation, because, and we'll get to this later in more detail as a point, while Ukraine may indeed, certainly for the Eastern Europeans, are they're right, and the Nordic countries, they're right, be a primary strategic interest. For the United States, it is at best secondary and perhaps tertiary even as an interest. So it's a larger European interest, and yet we are subsidizing this. 
And this makes no sense while we spend $54 billion to help Ukraine and the Europeans give Putin a billion a day because of their incredibly stupid energy policy of the last generation. So this is one reason, money, that the United States has real limits into what it gives to Ukraine, because ultimately, American foreign policy is and must be, despite the Council on Foreign Relations blob, helping the American people. That should be the yardstick for everything. It is not for doing social work. George Shultz, the former Reagan Secretary of State and one of our last great ones, uh, he used to do a test, and he'd bring newly minted Foreign Service officers into his room with his beautiful globe, and he would point to various parts of the world, and he'd say to them, what country are you representing? And they would invariably say, Schultz said, I had the pleasure to get to talk to him, he uh, said, Libya, Mali, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Syria, Russia, China, India, whatever country they were being sent to. And Schultz would bring them up short and say, no, you're not. You are there to represent the United States and not the other way around. And that must always be kept in mind in doing foreign policy. The president swears an oath on the Bible to the Constitution and people of the United States of America. If every single foreign policy move, this is the only realist yardstick, does this further the interests of the American people? That's it. That's what the United States should do. We are not the world policemen, as is often said, by people on the left, but what is not said by people on the right is true, but we're also not the world's only social worker, which often is the case. It is not our job to set all the ills of the world right. Um, I'm writing a new book about this, and I'll talk to you more about this in the future as the book gets going, because I'm excited for our community to have a real discussion about the book. And certainly, I want you to buy it. I'll be honest, I think it's going to be great. But I more than that want to have an educational discussion together before I write it and as I write it. But it takes as its title, Avoiding Sea Monsters. The notion that John Quincy Adams put it, that the United States should not go abroad in search of sea monsters to, to destroy that it is the guarantor of only its own of only its own liberty, even if the well-wisher to everyone's liberty. And this is indeed the case, that the yardstick must always be doesn't help the American people. And on the basis of the money argument, it's hard to see how endless spending in a bottomless pit, which we just got out of in Afghanistan and Iraq, and boy, wasn't that worth the money. What a catastrophe. While our own people suffer a massive cost of living crisis, we are subsidizing people in Afghanistan to surrender in a matter of minutes after we leave, literally, and somebody thinks that's a proper use of U.S. tax dollars. So the money is point one. The point two is that we don't see that the money buys us a stake in what happens. Instead, Joe Biden says to the Ukrainians who have overinflated goals, uh, and why not? Since other people are subsidizing their dreams, uh, the United States says under Biden, well, you know, it's Zelensky who gets to decide when the war is at an end. And the, some of the people around Zelensky, including his chief presidential advisor on foreign policy, said this weekend, we want to retake Crimea as though the Russians will allow this short of a nuclear exchange. This is crazy and we ought to say so. 
Getting back initial Ukrainian territory is important. Stopping the loss of more Ukrainian territory other than the Donbass, which is going to eventually go, as we all know. It's uh, World War I conditions out there, but slowly, surely, mile by mile, the Russians are winning ugly, as they always do, and grinding down the Ukrainians. But these ridiculous goals, we ought to be privately discussing with Zelensky right now what the United States is prepared to pay for in terms of material and money to help them. Is it really all the way to the border before 2014 that we're going to have rollback? We're going to risk tactical nuclear weapons? Zelensky doesn't get to decide this. He's the leader of a third-rate, corrupt, incompetent government, and he doesn't get to tell the greatest superpower in the world what our strategic aims are. And the fact that Biden is saying he gets to decide we're abdicating using our minds when we're paying for the party. And the rule in foreign policy is if you pay for the party, you get to decide the terms. You get to decide the music on, not the guests. Zelensky isn't paying for anything. And given the corruption, incompetence, and ineptitude of his country, I've been there many times. Let's remember this is Ukraine. Let's not pretend for a second that he does, because this is dangerous. It's being strategically comatose. It's feeling good rather than doing good and certainly abdicating responsibility for the American taxpayer who's funding the bill for all this. So we need to tell Zelensky privately exactly what we're prepared to do, how far we're prepared to go, and end this fanciful talk that we will bankroll an endless war, risk a tactical nuclear war to retake Crimea. The endless Ukrainian war aims are a second reason that there need to be real limits on what we do with Ukraine moving forward. And this is a key point that needs making. Um, the third point to make, and, and I alluded to it in, in point number one, is that the United States has no primary national interest there, which is precisely why I was against, and I'm being consistent, Ukraine joining NATO. Only countries that are primary American interests ought to join, which is why I'm for sometimes joining and sometimes not joining. And this is the third point. It's obvious in looking at a map, the United States has no longstanding trade, trading ties, political ties with Ukraine, that Ukraine is utterly peripheral to the United States geostrategically. And let's not forget the geo in that. Geography matters. There's a reason we didn't want Ukraine in NATO. One, we can't defend it, short of nuclear weapons, and nobody was going to fight a nuclear war for Kiev, nor should they. But let's remember, an Article 5 commitment <clears throat> is marriage. It's supposed to be forever. And we agreed to let in people that I don't think we'd fight a nuclear war for. And if you're not prepared to ultimately do that, you shouldn't willy-nilly expand the alliance. Now, I'm for letting in Sweden and Finland precisely because we do have long-standing ties, because it is a reciprocal relationship. We get great intelligence from Sweden, and Finland has a real and proper army, and 800 miles of border with Russia, where they have to put troops now there, thinning out their already depleted military forces. You've just made me a strategic argument for why they matter to the American people. Nobody can make this argument for Ukraine for the simple reason, Occam's razor, the simplest answer is best, that they don't that they don't. And because they don't, we should be very, very clear that there should be limits because it is a secondary or tertiary American concern. The idea that if Ukraine falls, the Russians are going to attack NATO is ridiculous. Vladimir Putin understands the difference. When people used to say to me, well, what's the line? Again, showing they don't understand geostrategy 
Uh, I'm talking to you neoconservatives and left-wing Wilsonians. What's the line then on Europe? The line is simple. The line is NATO. Putin understands that. That's precisely why he doesn't want countries next to him joining. But he understands the idea of the line. And the line is those in NATO, as we've seen, are safe. Those who aren't, are not. But the answer isn't expanding NATO endlessly, thereby diluting the alliance, making it unworkable when it is the most successful military alliance in history. I don't care about any given applicant country. I care about NATO. I care that it works as a tool for American power. That's what I care about. And it does. And that means not letting Georgia and Ukraine in which I have been consistently for. If you're Poland or Sweden, you have a very different read because of geography. And Ukraine is indeed a major interest, a primary interest. They're right to say that. If I were Polish foreign minister, that's exactly what I think. But I'm not the Polish foreign minister. I'm an American policymaker who sits on the realist right. And this, this does not match the laugh test for the amount of wherewithal and money for a secondary interest that we do this ad infinitum. This is not an answer because although it is true for certain European countries, then they can spend more money if they wish. It is not true for the United States, where again, Ukraine at best is a secondary interest. And it, it's certainly viable that we have a discussion. Should we be spending tens of billions of hard-earned taxpayer dollars on a secondary American interest? while well, the primary interest in the world, the Sino-American Cold War, is brewing in the Indo-Pacific, the region in the world where there's the most reward economically moving forward, almost all the world's future economic growth, and almost all the world's future political risk. And we're ignoring this while we're worrying about a secondary matter in Europe with a bunch of wealthy allies who ought to be able to take care of this on their own. Come on now. There need to be limits to this. And this leads me to my last point, the very notion of limits itself. I have worried so often that, that I used to say this, and I meant it for my St. Andrews class, graduate school class, which was very gifted, so I'm not knocking them, but had far more creativity about foreign policy than I met in my 10 years in Washington. The, the standard is incredibly low. I was, I mean, at saving themselves, at, at never taking the blame, at escaping the blame, at getting credit for things they don't deserve, at avoiding um, some sort of accountability. They're Machiavellian geniuses. It is like House of Cards. But at the actual practice of diplomacy, they're miserably mediocre at best or worst. I, I am astounded at how low the, the standard is. Still am. And it was and is. Um, all the points I'm making should be really without comment, and yet they're not commented on at all because they get in the way of the theory. You should never let facts matter less than your theory unless you're a Robespierreist, as we see on the Wilsonian let's always intervene left or the neoconservative let's always intervene right. And, and this has been a problem that people I meet reflexively have a view. I remember talking about Mike O'Hanlon, who was at the time a leading Wilsonian hawk during the days of Iraq, and he was on one of the news shows with me, I forget which one, and I challenged him, and he sounded like a realist. He said, well, we should only intervene in a country when our national interests are at stake. Well, it sounds like something I'd say. I was deeply suspicious because I knew that Mike wanted to intervene literally everywhere, and so I asked him, can you name me a country where you wouldn't intervene? And he thought, looked nervous, said nothing, because he would rather be humiliated by me on television along, along with the Wilsonian and neoconservative hawks, whose answer is always invade, to whom every problem is a nail. If you are indeed a hammer, invade, 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 because we can. Uh, 
he decided it would be better to be humiliated by me on TV than mention a country someday we might want to invade in. So I'd say, Ghana, Mali, Democratic Republic of Congo, Madagascar. I listed the most ridiculous examples I could think of for intervention by the United States where we have no interest at all. And he refused to say he wouldn't someday want to intervene there. That is how primed American policymakers are to, when in doubt, do more. And the answer should be, when in doubt, do less. The standard must be only act when it's in the interest of the American people, not only talk about countries that you might not invade in and then don't say anything because someday you might actually want to do that. It was an extraordinary moment, but it does show the mindset of the broader foreign policy blob. And again, the standard is breathtakingly low. My grad school class was infinitely more interesting. Um, and that is a terrible problem because we now have reflexive people. And there are some on the libertarian right who say never intervene and missed out on World War II when we should intervene or say don't be involved in an alliance structure in the Indo-Pacific, which is insane as we have massive interests there. So there are libertarian rightists who say never intervene and, and I'm against them, just as I'm against the vast majority of the foreign policy blob who say always intervene, always do more. And these are both ridiculous reactions. Being a realist means, in essence, that you say it depends. The answer isn't always do something or never do something. The answer is it depends on the interests of the American people and the situation. That is the freedom of realism, because most answers in life are it depends. And with Ukraine, which is a secondary issue, I think it's time we tell President Zelensky that he doesn't have a blank check, that we haven't gone into a coma strategically and we have our own interests and we are going to follow them and not his, and that this is the key factor moving forward. I haven't even mentioned another point, which is beyond this blank checkism. We're giving a blank check to a country that is notoriously corrupt, a country where, frankly, I had my credit card details stolen, unsurprisingly, a country that's mired in corruption, that despite all of its massive economic um, potential has never amounted to much, has been a rinky-dink, poor, backward place because of this endemic corruption, which is its own fault. Let's stop pretending that we should care more about these countries than they sh their people should about themselves. If you're endemically corrupt, you don't get investment. If you don't get investment, foreign investment, you don't prosper, full stop. And so we're giving endless amounts of money to one of the most corrupt places on earth, and nobody's talking about it. Nobody's talking about it. For all these reasons, there need to be real limits on helping Ukraine. I was for helping Ukraine at, at the beginning. I still am. I think that was the right call. But I have been always for limits, and we are approaching those limits. And worse, the Ukrainians think they have some sort of blank check from the United States. We must disabuse them of this notion as quickly as possible for all these reasons, because the responsibility of the president isn't to the people of Kiev. It's to the American people. We must not go abroad in, in search of sea monsters to destroy. We are the guarantor of our own liberty, if the well-wisher to the rest of the world. We only guarantee our own liberty, and that's precisely what the Constitution mandates. Hope you enjoyed this on Monday. Monday please do subscribe, and please do give the $70 for the price of cappuccino that I'm having to expend on spending my time with you, which is something I love doing. I'm so glad our community is booming. And again, I want to talk to you in the future about Avoiding Sea Monsters, our new book that we're just beginning, 
which is a history of American realism. And tell all your friends, tell everyone, because we have a massive marketing budget for this, and we probably will go out and see all of you in the States as soon as we can with this. It'll take me about a year, year and a half to write it, and then we're out to meet you all. And I'd love to talk you through the process as I write the book. I think that would be interesting for us both. So more on avoiding sea monsters, and a great example of this would be the realist limits to helping Ukraine. Thanks very much, and have a great week.